You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Did you see that? What a guy. He got the table for me. What a nice guy. All right. So every kitchen in every house I've ever been in has something in common. I'm not talking about the stove. I'm not talking about the sink or the fridge or the microwave. I'm talking about the junk drawer. Raise your hand if you got a junk drawer. In your, not a drunk drawer. That's a different sermon for a different day. A junk drawer. There you go. Everybody's got one of those, right? It's this little drawer we pull out where everything on the counter, we just go like, right? It all sort of finds its way in there. It's really messy, but it's essential. You need what's in it. You just can't say when. But when you need it, you know where you can find it. Well, that's where we're going this morning. This is the third and final week in our teaching series called Not Today, Satan, and This morning, we're going to close out this series by talking about four frequently asked questions related to spiritual warfare. It's going to be in four different places in God's Word, like your kitchen junk drawer. This message is going to be a little bit messy, um, but I I hope that it's going to be very, very helpful for you. So beyond that, um, just see here my heart in this to set this up. I, I know we've done a lot of work these last two weeks. In this series, we've raised a lot of issues, but I want to raise these four because these four are very common. And my heart to you as your pastor is I don't want to leave any of these things unanswered um, as we raise this topic uh, because I know these are things that you've probably wondered about because I get asked about them from time to time. And so we want to do our due diligence to make sure that we bring God's word to bear on some of these subjects. So much of where we've been these last few weeks is really centered around one idea. I don't know if you've caught that, but it's really about pushing past the fear associated with spiritual warfare and into something deeper. And by now you know that that something is really a someone. The solution to fear is not to minimize it, to diminish it, or to push it off. The solution to fear is really push past all of that because it's found in one person, Jesus. And today's going to be no different. So here's the big idea for today. Because Jesus is king, we don't have to fear. Man, if I wish we could just sit on that for like a month. Because Jesus is king, we don't have to fear. So four frequently asked questions about spiritual warfare and what Jesus has to do with every one of them. You ready? Here we go. Question number one. How do I know what I'm experiencing is spiritual warfare? So if you were with us in week one, you know one of the things that we need to think about when we approach this topic is we want to be balanced. We talked about how C.S. Lewis said that there's two errors we can fall into when it comes to spiritual warfare, and that's to obsess over it or to completely not look at it at all. And so we don't want to dismiss the work of the enemy, but we also don't want to look for the devil under every rock either. So quick example, Uh, let's say, you know, I have a bad day at work 
And on the way home, I get stuck in traffic, and then I get in my living room, and I stub my toe on the coffee table. Is that spiritual warfare? Okay, let's ratchet this up a notch. Let's say, you know, you have this marriage that you just cannot get some resolution in some very core issues. Like, nothing gets resolved in your marriage. Is that spiritual warfare? Or let's make it very pressing. Cancer diagnosis comes back, and this fear wells up within you. Is that spiritual warfare? Should we think about that any differently? So let's get a handle on this, and for this, I want to head right to the book of Job. We're going to be here for about five minutes. At the beginning of the book of Job, we're brought into this scene where Satan, Job literally uses the word accuser, appears before God. And listen to what he says. This is Job chapter 1, and you can follow along on the screen or you can flip there. Job chapter 1, we're going to take a look in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. This is a very troubling picture already. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant, my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now sit here for just a second. So Satan is walking up and down on the earth. He's plotting things, right? He's seeking our destruction. And then God goes, have you considered this guy? That's a little alarming. Skip down to verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay, that's crazy. And that should make our hair stand up a little bit. Do you get this? This is God allowing Satan to afflict Job. And if you know the book of Job, if you've read it, it's this back and forth ping pong match between Job and some friends who are terrible counselors until finally at the end of the book, Job just goes, God, what's the deal? What's going on? And God kind of turns it on his head and he basically answers Job with, Sort of a non-answer, but it's really the answer where he says, look, Job, I'm God, and I've still got you. So what does that mean? What do we do with that? What does it have to do with spiritual warfare? So bad news first, and then the good news. Bad news. Satan is a master opportunist. He can use any circumstance to get your eyes off of Jesus, big or small. Attack can come from anywhere. He can twist anything to suit his purposes, from stubbing your toe on a coffee table to something more sinister. But back in week one, we said that our enemy's ultimate intent is to undermine Jesus's ability. And we need to come back to that for a minute, because that's really important. Rather than asking, man, where is this coming from? Is this spiritual warfare? I think we need to train ourselves to ask a different question. I think we need to ask, how is what's happening to me affecting my belief in Jesus's ability? You see how that's a different question? How you answer that question is very, very important. We need to ask that because if we could say, how is, insert catastrophe here, affecting what I believe about Jesus. If insert catastrophe here happens, is Jesus still able? 
It's a very important question. So let's push past this and get this above the fold. Is the disconnection in your marriage spiritual warfare? Could be if you lose sight of Jesus. Are election results spiritual warfare? Could be if they cause you to doubt Jesus' ability. Is COVID spiritual warfare? It could be if it fear takes you to a spot where Jesus is no longer sovereign. You see how this question is a little bit more nuanced than we think? Whenever the solution to the pain you're experiencing bypasses Jesus, minimizes Jesus, makes little of Jesus, makes you question Jesus, the enemy is at work. When we allow the, the enemy to erode our confidence in Christ, whenever we get scared, whenever we get fearful, whenever we get panicky, when the subtle suggestion in the back of your mind is, I don't think Jesus can fix this, that's spiritual warfare. And if Job teaches us anything, though, and here's the good news, is that God can do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants, with whoever he wants. If your God depends on human systems and human limitations to accomplish his agenda, you need a new God. But because Jesus is king, we have nothing to fear. So the bad news is that the enemy can use anything to pull us away from Jesus. But here's the good news. The solution is always the same. Whether it's frustration because I'm stuck in traffic, whether it's anger seeping into my heart because the world isn't going the way that I think it should, or if it's something darker, here's the solution. Follow Jesus with courage. This isn't some disconnected monkish-like detachment where we just kind of like hunker down and be pious. Like that takes a lot of courage to say that because this kind of stuff is going to become unimaginably tougher in the coming years. Do you feel that? Preach the gospel with boldness. Make disciples with resolve. And let's not dare let up. Why? Because our Jesus is unquestionably sovereign and our Father is unquestionably good. Personally, and this is just me, do you know why like elections don't freak me out and why COVID doesn't really scare me? I mean, we take precautions and we do all that stuff and you guys are tracking with it. But beneath all of that, I'm deeply convinced of and committed to resting in a sovereign God. Job offers us a wonderful insight into who God is. So we're going to preach the gospel in Jesus' name no matter what. We're going to make fearless disciples of Jesus no matter what. We're going to follow him into whatever suffering comes our way no matter what. I'm not going to live in fear and neither should you. And it's not because of whoever's on whatever throne or whatever legislation is passed or any of that business. That has frighteningly little to do with it. This church does not need a perfect world to thrive. We only need to keep our eyes on a perfect Savior. Because Jesus is king, we do not have to fear. Second question. And this is going to take a turn for the dark. Can a Christian be possessed or oppressed by demons? What's the difference? And this is a really common question, and we don't talk about it a lot, but I think we need to. And for this, we're going to head right to Scripture. But first, let me disappoint you, actually. Um, scripture doesn't really use different words for demon possession or demon oppression. Um, in the Greek, there's one word, and it basically just means demonized. It means under the control or the effect of a demon. See that all in the New Testament. 
Back in week one, we talked about the reality of a spiritual realm that we don't see that's just as real as the physical realm that we do. And so the scene we're going to look at right now shows us exactly that. So here's the scene, Matthew chapter 12. Jesus has been teaching. We're going to pick things up in verse 22. This kind of thing happens a lot for Jesus. This is Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Here's what's happening. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, oh, it's only by Beelzebul or Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man is casting out demons. So the people see what Jesus is doing here, and they're mostly really amazed. But then there's like this other little group off to the side, and they're a little bit more cynical, and they're going, look, we know that Satan's crazy, like powerful, and he can do all kinds of stuff, and so it looks like what's happening here is Jesus is kind of doing some spiritual sleight of hand. He's under the control of a demon, and so that's how he's casting out demons. He's using some satanic power just to kind of gain some attention. And so Jesus explains in verse 25, he says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. It's not an Abe Lincoln quote, it's right here. (laughs) And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So this is Jesus basically saying, you guys haven't really thought this through. This is logically inconsistent for you. But then he gets to his point down in verse 29. He says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds up the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So here's what's happening. Jesus makes this theological point in verse 25, where he says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And then he uses this metaphor. So we've got the strong man in a house and plundering. What's all that about? This is a metaphor that Jesus is using. He's saying a strong man is the enemy. This house is a person And the plundering the goods is redeeming the value of a human life. So Jesus is saying that house is this man. The strong man that I just bound up is the enemy. And the goods that I'm plundering are this man's life that he is desperately valuable. And so all of that stuff that I just did, this is what it is. And this is about one reason. This is Jesus saying, I have authority here. Now, here's what this means. Let's back up a little bit. The phrase or the word possession implies ownership. And here's the good news. Christians cannot be owned by demons because we have been purchased by the blood of Christ. He owns us, okay? That's what that means when you read that theologically. He lives in you. Jesus continues about this in John 14. He says, the spirit of truth abides in you and will be in you. And then later, he even amplifies it when he says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My father will love him. We will come into him and make our abode in him. And so what that means, here's the good news, is a Christian cannot be possessed by a demon because the only way for that to happen is for that demon to get over, climb over, prevail over all three persons of the Trinity, which will not happen. That's a massive theological point that we cannot miss. Here's another way to think about that. Everybody is born with an empty room 
in their heart. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into that room and locks the door from the inside. And since it's locked from the inside, the only way for that door to be open is if he unlocks it and leaves. And the best part is, guys, he never will. You belong to him. I don't know about you, but I find tremendous comfort in that. But here's the rub, and this is a big deal. This is where this gets really tough and pretty practical. What happens right outside that door of your heart or the door of someone's heart doesn't always line up with what's inside the door of that heart. Okay? The reality is that sometimes a life can be so choked out, asphyxiated by powers of darkness that it doesn't feel that way on the inside. And so, yes, someone is saved, but what's right outside chokes that, or it feels that way. Possession is ownership from the inside. Oppression is pressure from the outside. Does that make sense? That's a very important distinction. So here's the long answer to what you thought was probably a very short question. A Christian cannot be possessed, but we absolutely can be oppressed. And you read about that in the New Testament all the time. Just to hit that distinction again, possession is ownership from the inside. Oppression is pressure from the outside. But we need to stop here for a minute um, before we move on because there's a question inside of this question that we need to ask. Why do we want to know? First thing, we need to really resist the urge to get academic with this. Because the most deplorable thing about the Pharisees back in Matthew chapter 12 is they were just asking because they wanted to scratch their theological itch. They cared nothing for the man, and they cared nothing for Jesus. They just wanted to go, okay, help us check the right box here and put this in the right container so we can figure it out and put a label on it and be done with it. And Jesus goes, wait, 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 wait. You're not going to ask just to ask. We need to have a bigger discussion here, a discussion that you're not paying attention to, you guys. And so... Here's the point. Spiritual curiosity without spiritual compassion always leads to spiritual cowardice. And that's what these Pharisees are guilty of. And we don't want to be guilty of the same thing. And so if you're asking this question, and if you really want to know, be prepared to go to war. (laughs) Because this is a big deal. We don't want to ask the question just to be curious. Because the enemy is totally fine with spiritual curiosity. You can have all the theology textbooks in the world. He doesn't care. Secondly, though, um, there's some of you listening this morning, whether here or those online, you're in the midst of this battle. And when I describe the pressure from the outside, you feel that. And you hate it. You don't know where it's coming from. And so this isn't like some disconnected, abstract, theological, academic truth for you. This is real. The enemy wants to convince you that Jesus is not for you. And so it doesn't do much good to hear me just say, well, Jesus is in you, now go in peace. That's true, but it doesn't feel that way. And it doesn't feel that way because the enemy is working overtime on you. He's crowded out the doorway of your heart to where it feels asphyxiatingly dark. And he wants to convince you that Jesus may have ownership and authority, just not over you. He wants you to believe that you're lost, you're a mistake, and you're not worthy of God's love. And the very real tension I feel is there's no way I can throw a lasso around all of those lies in an eight-minute 
segment of a 40-minute message. (laughs) So we're going to come back to this in a minute because we have something that I want to give you. But for now, if you're feeling doubt in the deep places this morning, please hear me and believe this. First off, you are not alone. You are not alone. Satan wants to push you off to the side so he can pick you off like a sniper, but you have a church who loves you. Second thing, you're not crazy. The fears and doubts that you have are real, but there is a deeper truth. You're also, you're not invisible. Your father sees you because your father can see in the dark. You are deeply loved. The truest thing about you is that you are loved by a holy God and nothing that you or anyone else can do will ever change that. Because Jesus is king, we don't have to fear. So since we're in this dark place for a minute, third question. So what about magic and Ouija boards and tarot cards and stuff like that? Now I feel like this is worth bringing up because of how pop this stuff has sort of become in our culture. Um, and I want to know, I want to help you know how to handle that. So um, the other day, Josh Broyles and I were talking, he's a student ministry intern, and we were talking about this stuff because um, he was sharing a story about walking into a bookstore here in North Canton, and two out of the three tables, like right when you walk in the front door, two out of the three of them are full of like magic spells and manuals and like this, like pop occult stuff. So what do we do with that? Because it's right in our face, and I think we need to confront it. So the book of Acts tells the story of the early church. It's like Church 101. And there's this scene in Acts chapter 19. You can go ahead and turn there. Acts chapter 19, where Paul first comes to the city of Ephesus. It's the city that he would spend three years in. Ephesus was like a second home for Paul. He preaches the gospel, and God's doing these amazing things, and Paul creates a pretty big stir. But now check out Acts 19. We're going to take a look in verse 17, because this is right at the height of Paul's preaching. Here's verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Okay, so this is what you want to see. This is a good thing. And many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. Now, this is interesting. A number of those who had, pra- who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I mean, this is great. <laughs> This is like full-on revival, you know? Like, Paul's preaching the gospel. People respond, and then that last word that I really love is like, the word of God prevailed mightily. Like, that's what I want to see. So a couple quick insights from this text, what's happening, and then a couple quick conclusions. First, stuff like magic and tarot cards and all this stuff, this has been around for a long time. This is not new to our culture. It's exceptionally well-marketed in our culture, but it's been around for a long time. In Ephesus, this stuff was just part of the landscape. It was like horoscopes in the newspaper. It was kind of everywhere. Ephesus actually had this big open-air marketplace called the Agora, where people would sell like talismans and rings and necklaces and all this stuff that you could wear that would, you could bring good luck on yourself or cast bad luck on somebody else. 
And all those materials across time have one thing in common, and here it is. At their core, they are always about promising personal power. Always. That's still true. That's an important insight. This is not about entertainment. This is about manipulating the spiritual world and the physical world through spiritual unknown means. So that's point number one. Point number two about this text, right in there, is to understand the magnitude of what's actually happening here, we've got to understand what that cost was. The text says it was 50,000 pieces of silver. In today's money, you want to guess what that is? Five and a half million dollars. That's quite an expensive bonfire. You think that made a dent in the city of Ephesus? What happens if you took five and a half million dollars out of a city's economy? You think they're going to notice that? That's a big deal. Then third thing from this text, most important, we should see verse 19, that bonfire, connected to verse 20. Go ahead and throw verse 20 back up on the screen or get there in your Bible again. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You get that because of what happened here. This led to this. So what should we do with this scene? Now, this may sound strange, but I really believe that texts like this are super important for 2021. Here's why. So many in our world are so desperate for power and security and stability. And all of those products promise those things. They promise power. They promise security. They promise stability. And you can have it. And it's real. They appeal to these very base desires. But here's the point of all this and where we find the gospel truth. At its core, revival is always about one thing. It's always about people exchanging one thing for something else. That's what revival is always about. We're doing a teaching series in a couple of weeks called Awakening, where we talk about biblical revivals. But you can look across cultures, you can look across times, doesn't matter who the leader is or where it's happening. Revival, at its core, is always about people saying, I am giving up this and I want Jesus. Every time. That's what revival is about. I'm trading this power for this power. And it can happen with a people group like it happens here in Acts 19. It could happen just one person, like the first domino to fall. But that's always at the core. I'm not hoping in this anymore. I'm done with this. Now I'm trusting in Jesus. So what do we do with that and how should we apply it? I don't think you should go to bookstores and start bonfires, okay? Just to be clear. That's not revival. That's arson. So what do we do with this? So follow me here for a minute. We are hardwired to understand where power comes from. Did you ever think about that? This is stamped on our genetic makeup. From the time we begin breathing, we need to know where power comes from. It's how we are formed as people. Who has power over me? Is this person safe? Can they be trusted? Are they good? We learn this as babies. From the day we're born... Power or the quest for power can become a driving force in our decision making. It's what turns image bearers of God into monstrous people. You can look in history and you can find them. It's the quest for power. So hear me on this one. Discipleship is the choice to submit myself to the power of Jesus. Jesus. 
Just like revival is when I trade all these other things for Christ, that's what discipleship is. It goes, okay, God, I'm trusting you. All of my chips are on Christ. That's what discipleship looks like. Here's what that means for me. So like, I don't know what's best for my life. That's just a simple confession. I don't know what's best for my life, but he does, and so I'm following him. I can't fix what's wrong in me, but he can, and so I'm trusting him. I can't do what needs done in me, so I do what he tells me, and I wait for him to do it. That's just me. What happens when we turn those truths around and face them out there in our world? Okay, I know those things are true for me, that Jesus can fix me, but do I have the courage to turn them inside out and go, are those, do those truths still apply in our world when I look at what's wrong out here? I don't know what's wrong with my world. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know what's best for it, do you? No, but he does. And so we follow him. We trust him and we follow in obedience. I can't fix what's wrong with it. Can you? No, he can And so in faith, we follow and we watch what he does. That's just my heart. The most mind-boggling thing that I've seen in the last year is in all the flurry of opinions that fly around, all the legislation and bashing and gaslighting and name-calling and hate, all I see is humanity desperate to do for themselves what Jesus has already done. He says, I've shown you how to have peace. And we don't believe them. And so we don't follow them. Idolatry is not just for ancient people wandering around in deserts. It's any time I trust anything more than Jesus. But what's the good news? When we surrender power to Christ, revival is a whisper away. So specifically for me, here's what I do with all that pop occult stuff. I'm not afraid of the boogeyman, okay? But because this stuff is real and I just don't want to dignify it, I've learned to draw some really tight lines in my life. Like, I don't even watch horror movies, okay? Like, not because I'm scared of them, although maybe that's part of it, let's be real. But it's just like, no, I don't want to give power to that stuff. I don't want to affirm that power because that's real, you know? Like, for me, I have to be really careful what music I listen to and what art I bring into my life because for me, like music and art and beauty really stick with me. I've just noticed that and maybe you're the same way. And so I've got to be careful about that and it's easier for me just to draw the line and go, I just don't need that. I'm just going to keep it out here. And so maybe some of you have some personal inventory to do in this area. Does what you really love help you in your walk with Jesus? If not, why are you holding on to it? What are you really counting on to bring you peace? Consider evaluating that. Are you holding on to something, but you really feel like it's holding on to you? Chuck it. One final word on this, and this is about as personal as I'll get. If you knew, and and if you've seen what it's like for somebody to come back from the other side of this stuff, you'd never want to go near it. But remember, it's like we've been saying, because Jesus is king, we don't have to fear. So last question in the junk drawer And this is the most timely for me and probably the most valuable for us this morning. What is the church's role in spiritual warfare? Because up until this point, this has been a lot about you, like your walk, what you do, and the private mind that you have, your personal choices. But I think there's an obligation here for the church, and we got to talk about this. So 
Out of all of Paul's letters to churches, he wrote to at least seven churches. Paul, Philippians is probably his most positive. And so we're going to end with Philippians this morning. Paul writes to this young, diverse church, and his letter to them is basically just saying, guys, keep up the good work. Keep doing what you're doing. So this is Philippians chapter 1. We're going to take a look in verse 27, kind of toward the end. Here's what he says. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm with one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's tremendous. Verse 28 not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, that's a phrase, striving side by side. That's the one that we really want to key in on. That phrase is one word in Greek, and it means wrestling. May not shock you, I did not wrestle in high school. Just a disclaimer in case you were curious. Wrestling is this physical, visceral striving. It's hard. It's tough, and it's this beautiful word. But then, to make sure that Paul doesn't think we get this idea that it's this quaint, cute sentiment, he continues in verse 29. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. What's the deal with that? Like, whoa, 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 I'm not sure I want that, Paul. Like, I'm just here for the music. I'm just here for the preaching. Like, I just show up to church on Sunday morning. I go home, and I'm good. Like, I don't know if I want that suffering part. I don't think I can do that. And Paul's gospel corrective here is he says, look, if you want to walk with Jesus, this suffering bit, this is part of the deal. This is what church looks like, striving side by side, suffering for the sake of the gospel. Wrestle. And do it side by side. Fight for others. C.S. Lewis wrote a book that I know many of you have read. We've referred to it a few times through this series called The Screwtape Letters. And in it, Lewis imagines a conversation between two demons, an older one named Screwtape and his young protege apprentice nephew, Wormwood. Aren't those great names? They're terrible names, but... Great fictional names. The entire book is this collection of Screwtape's letters to Wormwood where he offers advice on how to attack a man who he calls his patient. Here's one of Screwtape's recommendations. And see if this doesn't conjure up some connection between what Paul says in Philippians. Here's what he says. If your patient can't be kept out of the church, at least he ought to be violently attached to some party within it. I don't mean on real doctrinal issues. About those, the more lukewarm, the better. The real fun is working up hatred between those who say Mass and those who say Holy Communion when neither party could possibly state the difference between what's he saying. Cause division in trivial things. Let his deepest affiliation be in worldly things with worldly labels so that he learns to see his brother as his enemy. Can you think of a more cutting attack for the church in 2020 and 2021? Let me tell you what I've seen. 
and what I believe to be some of the biggest obstacle, really the biggest obstacle to Paul's words in Philippians 1, 27. He says, fight for others. And the reason that we don't fight for others is because so many Christians are busy fighting with others. Satan had a field day with this this last year in our world. I'm thankful that our church didn't take the bait. He hardly had to break a sweat in 2020 because so many Christians are doing his work on their own. So what's the corrective? And it's nestled right here in this text. Strive side by side. Wrestle for each other. What's that look like? It can look like a lot of things, and I'm just going to give you three. I've got like two minutes left. Mm -hmm. Here you go. How do you strive side by side? What does this mean for the church? First thing, pray. Pray. And I mean labor in prayer. Pray until it hurts. This next weekend, we've got over 100 students coming here for this student weekend called Amplify. Pray for them. Pray that God will protect them. Pray that God will speak to them. Then he'll give them confidence as they go out and seek to change their world for the glory of Christ. This world is assaulting them. Pray for them. Turn off your phone. Hit your knees. Go to war. Pray for those that are stuck home and are fearful. Pray for those who can't come out of their home for medical reasons and all of this other stuff. Pray that Satan would keep his claws away from here. This is Galatians 6.2 where he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Why is that so important? Because Satan fears a church that prays for each other. Satan doesn't care about a busy church. He doesn't care about an involved church. He really doesn't even care about a big church. But when Christians pray for other Christians, he hates it because we know where the power comes from. And when we do it, he knows. So pray. Second thing, take initiative. Take initiative. Pray, take initiative. Here's the thing. Every church says they're about community, right? This is a place where you can belong. And in most cases, that's true. Because there's a lot of good churches. But here's the thing, no matter what your church home is, community is cumulative, Community is a result. Community doesn't happen overnight. It's a result that depends on you and me taking initiative for, pursuing, and taking responsibility for, owning each other's spiritual health and saying, I am for you, and I take responsibility for you. And this isn't vision casting. It's just biblical. Romans 14, 19 says, pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of each other. It's what we do. If we, were really, if we really understood how many people are pushing hard against the darkness, struggling to keep their faith afloat, wrestling on their own, wondering if they can hold it off, we would never get into such small-minded debates, church. We'd take initiative, we'd reach out, we'd wrestle for people, not with them. And in a world of such out-of-their-mind distraction and division, and disconnection, this is one of the greatest opportunities for the kingdom of God. So let's be the kind of person now that they will need then. Third thing, remind each other of the truth. You pray, you take initiative, and you remind each other of the truth. Church is not a building. Church is not an event, right? This is not what that is. Church is a people. Church is a people on mission, 
doing the things that Jesus calls us to do for his glory. And one of the most crucial ways that we can do that is to remind ourselves of not only who we are, but whose we are, that we belong to him. And guys, why is that so important? Just like we talked last week, the enemy shoots for your identity. He tries to cut you off at the knees. And that's when you need other people in your life to go, hey, 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 don't you buy that lie. Don't do that. I see what you're believing. Don't buy it. This is the role of the church. Because Jesus is king, we have nothing to fear. Now, we have a really practical way um, that what we've created, uh, something that can help you do this. And so here's a quick little story. Um, as we began this series, we started to talk and pray and say, okay, God, what could we do? What could we give people to say, all right, this is hard. This identity stuff is hard because the lies are so clear. And so um, Pastor Matt, who's our online community pastor, and Pastor Micah kind of put their heads together, and they came up with a couple of really cool resources, and I want to show them to you. You can see them on the screen behind me, um, but I've also got, here, I've got this one right here. So on your way out this morning, um, in, on the basket, or in baskets, on the stands in the back of the room, there's this little bookmark that just says, your identity in Christ. And it names a common lie that the enemy wants to tell you. It gives you the gospel corrective. And then if you're like me and you need a little bit more help because you're a little thick-headed, there's a song that you can listen to that helps to correct that for you. And there's 20 of them. Stuff like, the lie is I'm not strong enough. The truth I am strengthened by Jesus for whatever may come, 2 Corinthians 12. And then I go listen to the song, Your Love is Strong by John Foreman. So not only that, though, not only the bookmark, which you can pick up, but for those of you watching online, um, they're going to be in the comment thread. You can download a digital copy. But there's also 19 days of devotional that if this identity stuff is something that you really wrestle with and you have a hard time getting over you can go online to nchapel.online slash resources and you can sign up for a 19-day devotional that's going to get pushed right to your inbox because we really want to help you do this as a church. I think this is our responsibility and so we want to make it very, very easy for you. But on top of that, if you are a Spotify person, if that's how you listen to music, I know for me, that's where I am, we've created a separate Spotify playlist that has all identity songs that you can just listen to on repeat to help get this stuff in your head. And so for me, I need that. So head to ncchapel.online slash resources, or if you're in the room, you can go grab one of those bookmarks on your way out. This entire series has hovered over one idea. Because Jesus is king, we don't have to fear. And I wish I could just give that to you and say, here, believe that. But this is work. And we're with you and we are for you. We're going to sing this song as we close. That's such a good identity message. And you can sit if you like. You can stand if you like. You can sing. You can just stand in quiet. Whatever you want to do is okay. But what I really want for you as you leave today and as we close the chapter on this series, I want these truths to seep into us. <laughs> Let's pray together, can we? Father, sometimes our enemies' lies are so strong. They're so strong because they're everywhere. But God, you have given us your word so that we could believe truth. You've stepped into this world as the incarnate word to show us what that truth looks like. 
We say thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his cross that we don't have to run. We don't have to be afraid anymore. We can come to you in confidence knowing that you love us. So Father, we say thank you, thank you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.